0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Now more than ever, Russia has become hard to escape as a presence on the world stage. To paraphrase a quote by Trotsky, you may not be interested in Russia, But Russia just might be interested in you, or maybe your country's electoral process. That is largely because of the ambitions of the man in charge in Russia for nearly two decades now, Vladimir Putin. Which brings us to our topic this week. In June and July, the Museum of the Moving Image hosted a film series called Putin's Russia, a 21st-century film mosaic. The series looked at the country's rich and complex history and culture through a contemporary lens. I took the opportunity to talk about the artistic and political risks in recent Russian cinema with the series' co-programmers.
1: Eric Hines, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image and film comment columnist. And
2: Daniel Witkin, freelance film writer and guest curator of the series Putin Russia, a 21st century film mosaic at the Museum of the Moving Image.
0: Here's our conversation. I've long wanted to do a podcast on... Russian cinema on Russia. Generally, it's you know, any any observer, casual observer of the past few years, uh, and and the past 25 years, and the past century and a half, and the past few centuries, would know that that's a, a pretty fruitful topic. Um, but now, now especially, uh, we're very fortunate because there is a series that uh, Eric and Daniel have put together that really really concisely, and I'd say precisely, um, is, is able to kind of plot out the recent Russian history as filmmakers have grappled with it, or in certain cases, not grappled with it as, as much as you might expect uh, and reflected it. Uh, so this is a very serendipitous thing, but not serendipitous because it's also kind of an act of criticism, the, the act of programming this so I almost wonder where we should begin. I'm almost wondering my signature way of starting this podcast is where to begin.
1: <laughs> well, I guess I can just quickly talk about a little bit of where the program came from and how Daniel and I started approaching it, which is, I mean, there's plenty of things to be said in terms of the, the both Daniel and I have, have spent time in, Mo, in Russia and Moscow specifically um, at, at different moments and therefore kind of had different waves of of coming to 21st century Russian cinema for me it was a little bit earlier 2004 2005 and Daniel you were what year's those
2: are in 2014
1: 2014 and so the, the 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 thing that i've been thinking about for a long time since i was living there and what I was, as somebody who had never visited before, knew very little of the language and was trying to catch up as quickly as I could when I moved there for a year, was to watch as much cinema as I could, watch as much television, watch, listen to as much music. Just going to take in as much of the culture that was very current as I could. And I realized that I had a very unique probably skewed in various ways, ways of understanding the country and culture. Um, But I also was really fascinated by the different things that I was learning and taking in that way. And I thought it was a really interesting way of looking at um, a country and culture. That has only been complicated by the fact that there's been an 18 years of a presidency that sets off the entire 21st century in Russia. And to look at those 18 years during Putin's reign through cinema is again you get the kind of skewed view um but in a the reason we call it a 21st century film mosaic a mosaic portrait of a country during this period of time Instead of though, there's a critical angle. There's a critical reason for doing the series that it's time to the World Cup It's also clearly a moment where we need to be paying we, we should have all always been paying better attention to what's been going on in Russia rather than just seeing it through our own lens of the United States um, This is the right moment for it, but also just each film is not some Expression of our taste necessarily. It's not necessarily the greatest films of the century. It's trying to look at it from as many different angles as we could while also presenting films that we really care about. So that's kind of like the the unifying idea of it um, as it being a critical act. And and so we watched a lot of films and came up with a lot of films in the series, but it's still only a fraction of what we could be showing in terms of really worthwhile films of the 21st century.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a surprisingly rich time if you think about how kind of impoverished Russia's political culture has been and the effect that the Putin government has had. And I was, as I went deeper and deeper in, I mean, and this is as someone who really has a high view of kind of Russian culture in general, including contemporary Russia, I've lived there, just how much depth there is and how much good stuff there is in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, like you said, we're showing things from a lot of different points of view. And I think there are some films here, if you just took them, you would have a rather skewed view. But I do like having so many kind of crosswise perspectives, especially because in the West, you know, we talk about Russia as kind of this rather monolithic thing. And I think Putin himself really lends himself to that because it's just sort of like the Kremlin is sitting on top of the society. You know, I think when you go deeper and deeper in, you see that there are a lot of different points of view and a lot of just outright contradictions in terms of both how people perceive the reality, but also the, uh, the uh, reality itself.
0: Well, I'm wondering how, you know, just to start thinking about some of the films in, in the series, how do they grapple with Putin? You know, as the rain just kind of continues and prolongs and it becomes apparent what it is, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's some films that were made in the 2000s, early 2000s, that were maybe still a kind of hangover from the 90s. But then maybe you started to see in Russian cinema, a, more of a reaction to Putin. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how, how does that really, how did that play out? Well, I mean, I think
1: two things. Well, I mean, you're right to, to bring up the early early aughts versus now. Like, there's a real evolution and there's a real difference. It's, I mean, it's you could argue that it's too big of an expanse of time. But obviously, if, if Putin is your lens, then you've got films from 2000 and 2018. And there's a very, very different moments. Um, but we also decided not, like, when we first... Our first giant list incorporated all of these films that were very political, that were very taking on Putin in a very brave and important way at various moments over these years. Almost all of that wound up getting filtered out because we found that the films that took a more sort of sidelong or personal or localized uh, view or, or approach were more valuable, more interesting to bring to an audience in this context than a film that went like was was more of an expose or is more of a, a political broadside so there's not a ton it's not like every film here takes on Putin directly some do um but to your question the when, when does it first start I, that's one of the things that I, I think that the, when I was there certain films made such a strong impression on me is when I was there was when that that pivot from the first to the second term mm-hmm. happened and that was when Putin made some pretty strong moves you know in terms of allegedly poisoning a ukrainian a presidential candidate uh several assassinations of journalists um, were happening in the year leading up to that there was a real clamp down that if you were paying attention was not a huge surprise but was quite a, a signal that this election was going to maybe be different than the last election and that started making its way into the cinema and the film that i think that jumps out for me in terms of that, is four.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I would just add that you have kind of... There are some films where Putin feels kind of like a, like, a, like a structuring absence almost. Right. And the government itself is kind of unspoken and doesn't make for much of a direct appearance, but you still kind of feel it. And then I think really much later on yet, yeah, the films are about Putin as P- Putin. I mean, Our New President is a movie where Putin is almost right. like the protagonist or antagonist depending on how you want to Mm -hmm. put it Mm -hmm. and kind of I think the one kind of visual motif that runs through so many films this is kind of the middle ground of the two extremes is where there's like in some bureaucrat's office there's like this stock portrait of the of the president you just see him for for just a sec Mm -hmm. but it just allows you to feel kind of how omnipresent he is.
1: Well, I think the films of the the aughts, there, there's a lot of those that I think of that fall like that. Like um, Zvigantsev's uh, Leviathan and The Fool, where that are kind of like the sort of, it's there, it's in the room almost all the time. The kind of like the sort of weight of 12 to 15 years of Putin's rule. And it's just kind of the, the fact of this regime, um, whether it's a portrait on the wall or just the kind of bureaucratic entanglement being part of it, but I was just, I, I just wanted to make that point about four being kind of a real pivot point. I think in terms of an art house film having kind of the ability or the guts to sort of I mean they they you know in, in a very broad way that doesn't get translated all that well in the in the subtitles of that film. Just kind of really making fun of him and his whole family in the first, one of the, the first long scene of the film, and then the rest of the film is basically just like to taking apart russian society in, in 2004 in a moment that it was portraying itself as being at a high in terms of the oil boom and economically successful that is the first wave that led to a wave of films that i think were taking him on pretty directly and and i think a lot of documentaries followed from there too but by the time we get to what you're referring to um there aren't that many films that are really able to take it on f- straight ahead.
0: Yeah, can can you just 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 tell us a bit about what four is? I mean, this that was it was kind of a I think it was a, um, it it actually got a release in in, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, I remember because I as a freelancer I, I I wrote it up, and it was just such a burst of of uh you know surreal energy and you know both just uh, the the stories in it and and the visual sense of it at the same time. Um, but can you just dis- describe it? What, what is it? It's like a pastiche of, of stories in a way.
1: Yeah, I'll describe it. I'm going to ask Daniel. Daniel is so much better at pronouncing names. So I'm going to ask you to pronounce the director's name
2: Ilya Khrushchevsky. Fantastic. Um,
1: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> who is, as if anybody's been paying attention to long form uh, nonfiction writing of the last couple of years, has been written up in various ways for his follow up film, Dow, uh, which he is nice. still making 14 years after four. Um, but, uh, f- which is a fascinating, going to be worth a podcast when, once, po- whenever that actually happens. Yes, definitely. Um, but for quickly is, uh, three characters, it's, it's like, it starts like a joke, really three characters meet in a bar and one is a meat packer or Meet Magnate. Uh, Another. (laughs) Thank you
0: for using the preferred term.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Another another is a piano tuner. um, And another is a prostitute. And they arrive late night and have about a 35 minute long conversation where they're all basically lying to each other um, elaborately. And then they separate. And then we follow each of them back into their lives. And we see very different places that they go. Um, And. The piano tuner and the prostitute have probably the more interesting and devolved uh, situations with the piano tuner, Um, basically being arrested for no cause and then being recruited into the army and the prostitute going back to her home to be with her family, which is one of the most surreal, animalistic, uh, bacchanalia, overladen sequence that I can
0: like it's impossible yeah, to describe. It's, it's like outtakes yeah. from the Macbeth witches scenes. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, that's that's for. That, that's that's for. And I mean, what what one of the things that, that fascinated me about that movie is that is the lunacy of it, which is entertaining and, and funny at times, but also if you think about it for a second, <laughs> is horrific. And 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 that's that's one thing that seems to crop up uh, in, in in a few uh, few of the films. Just that. I, I said beforehand to Daniel, we're going to need to talk about suffering, <laughs> and 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 th- that's just because it's it's hard as as a critic, especially a person who has not lived there. I have not lived in Russian, and so I don't have the firsthand lived experience of the environment of uh, the mores, I guess you'd say, that <laughs> the kind of I don't know. It's strange to watch some of these movies and, and know that, as strange and horrific and grim as they seem, they are close to the reality and not even that they might not even be able to capture the whole reality so they actually are still holding back. How do we understand that in that as a kind of cultural product or like tone?
2: <laughs> well, I think it would be very difficult to sort of define the Russian relationship to suffering, which is a huge part of the culture. I think many Russians would be kind of at a loss to do so. Well, but I will say to kind of turn it around on ourselves, I think that we in the West, and especially kind of in the Anglo-American West, tend to have a very particular response to suffering, where we kind of see someone like you know, if you're suffering, you should probably do whatever you can so that you're not. And if you don't, for whatever reason, there's kind of some, something off, something's wrong with you. Maybe you're you're, you're a, mor- a moron. Um, well,
0: that that yeah, that's I mean that's yeah. the basis of our American politics yeah. lately, and
2: <laughs> like. Basically, I think that that's not the only way, and in some of these films, you see people both in the way the filmmakers approach them and in the way the uh, the subjects do as well, who take rather a different approach. Um, so, one of the movies that I was kind of thinking about in that way is this film, Something Better Better to Come, which, if I might summarize, is about a young girl who's kind of grow, growing up in a dump, and it's not a metaphorical dump; it's the the physical largest trash dump in europe and that, that's outside moscow it's, it's like thirteen miles outside Moscow and it 's quite grim because throughout the film people are always saying oh, i gotta I gotta get out of this dump don 't want to live my whole life in the dump and it's just becomes this like extraordinarily grim pun, but as a Westerner, you kind of watch that movie and you You just want to grab them and it's this whole community of of people who live there, and you just want to pull them out. It's the instinct that you have. Mm. You know, as you continue watching it, you see the way these people kind of have these full lives there, even as their kind of physical reality is to someone who doesn't share it at all completely horrifying.
1: Mm. Right. They have there are families, there are friends, there are relationships, there are teens who are flirting with each other. Like that all happens there. And you have to, and what's great about that film is it's a durational film. It came out around the same time as Boyhood, actually. It was shot over 12, 14 years. Yeah. And but with that approach, you are absolutely forced to accept that reality. You know, it's not. It doesn't exist just f- for us to think to be shocked by it and to want to save them from it. As you're saying, you have to accept that reality and see the lives that's living within it. It's an extreme example, I think, of what you're saying though it being an actual dump. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
2: not all of Russia is an actual dump. <laughs> Some of Russia is merely. There's significant of war. stretches <laughs> that are not a dump.
0: Wait, who? And, and the filmmaker for that is H- Hannah Pollack? Is that? Yeah. yeah. She.
2: So she's a a a, 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 a Polish filmmaker. I want to say.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, so that's, yeah, that's, that's one kind of, one, one kind of slice of, of how you might approach, you know, grim existence, realities of grim existence. Uh, I mean, and you know, then to just kind of skitter along to another extreme, I mean, there's the movies you have in it. Yeah. I mean, that seems like that seems to be tapping into a different tradition to, to address, um, existence in, in a way.
1: Yes. But, uh, but there is a, and this is a uh, take full responsibility for this, I think, I, I, this is a, a decision that I made to use those last two films. And I've, we never talked about this, whether not Daniel, you would have actually chosen one of the earlier films. But for me, that is when he became, whether he meant to be or not, a political filmmaker um, with Leviathan. That the films prior to that operated on a more kind of chamber piece level. And then with mm-hmm. Leviathan, he was he was kind of taking on... The political moment. And I think he did so still with Loveless. So I just feel like yeah. those were the two that belonged in this conversation. But it doesn't mean that his films in, in general don't deserve their own spot.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Love, Loveless, the last one, almost has a more Western point, point of view. I mean, it's hmm. a movie that you can almost, you know, it's not so unlike Hanukkah film in a way. Mm-hmm. Leviathan is interesting because it kind of combines sort of this pro-Western social satire with this very kind of like orthodox meta allegory where the protagonist is kind of compared implicitly to a figure like Job. Mm-hmm. It is this weird way of kind of like inverting the current Russian authorities approach to, 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 to the church. And I'm not I'm not sure if I, if I completely understand the allegory or think that it's entirely successful. But I do think that it's a fascinating film to see kind of how it threads that line and kind of applies this more Western brand of social critique to a very Russian context in something like the uh, the idiom. Yeah.
1: yeah, well, I mean, I was just going to say that Leviathan is basically the last film of his that was financed in Russia that mm. kind of slipped by in a way and was... Yeah it was effectively reprimanded for it so lovelace i think was largely funded through in europe so the fact that you're seeing a sort of european uh or western bent to that film is interesting um i see not so much i, I don't i don't see it quite in those terms but i do see a level of anger um that is hard to come back from lovelace just strikes me as such a livid film within its kind of contained bottled up um tone i think it's livid and which is like so different he's such a different filmmaker than uh, like like Sergei Loznitsa um but Loznitsa has been angry for a while it's interesting to see this guy who kind of makes russian uh, 21st century russian fables that play like chamber pieces and have a euro um, art house quality to them kind of get to a point that's not at Loznitsa's place but it's also a very angry
2: place. That last shot of Loveless is extremely severe.
0: Wait, just for our viewers or listeners, what's the last shot again?
2: You have um, this woman who's one of like this central couple who are portrayed with some degree of sympathy, but in a very, very, very critical way. And kind of as everything's, this kind of horror has elapsed and they've kind of forgotten about it, you see her jogging on the veranda of this like kind of mansion type building outside of Moscow. And she's wearing like a Russian Olympic tracksuit. So if you weren't aware that this is about the society as a whole, you are now.
0: Yeah. It's it's just interesting about the tracksuit because that was a kind of a, a, a big point of contention. I remember it when that movie showed at Can because everyone was like, oh, you had to make it so obvious. You had to go and do that. And and I interviewed him there and I actually asked him like, you know, what's the deal with the tracksuit? <laughs> and, and he said, well, you know, I, I know a lot of people, he basically said that he knows that a lot of people take it as a, as a, like a billboard of political commentary, but that, he said, but also that's what people were wearing if they were of a certain class when they were, and they were being patriotic and supporting. So it's actually a commentary, but maybe not in the way that you're, you're thinking of it. It's not like me broadcasting something like that.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's like being socially in, in and sort of a sociologically yeah. accurate, while yeah. also clearly. I mean, because it's also like inside the TV is showing, like there's, a, there's the, the sort of Ukrainian conflict is yeah. on TV while she's doing that too. Yeah. I mean, it's a real... It is. Well,
2: one thing you see just in Putin's Russia, and I think, I mean, in our country, too, is just how kind of the gap between, like, reality and allegory kind of just collapses in in on itself, and how just things just become their own metaphors so overtly, like, you know, every other day, like, Trump does something that's this, you know, huge kind of metaphor of his entire presidency, and, you know, Putin's kind of the same way. And so... It's. I mean, some of these late, late later films also. I mean, Our New President is 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 a, is a, is a good, good example. Some of the docs too. I mean, they really lend themselves to to allegory, maybe more than even intended, just because the reality, you know, gives itself this sort of uh new new uh, dimension. Well, can we talk about Loznica then? So? Yeah,
0: I wanted to bring up Loznitsa and and with a particular spin on on the hitting the ball back to you, which is just that thinking of where does this leave a filmmaker who wants to comment on any of this? Because Zygintsev is a kind of interesting because although he is, uh, you know, talking about the state of society, outside, like off, you know, he still seems somewhat circumspect about his statements. He's not like outside, like pounding the pavement and like holding up signs. He's pretty careful about that. Liznitz is more in the position of, it's like almost the more traditional position of the filmmaker in exile, where he, he does allow himself to do that, but he also very ke- careful not to be living in Russia while he does make such commentary. So like, where does this leave the filmmaker? Like, I'm also thinking historically you know, of, of people under the Soviet Union, like Tarkovsky being a filmmaker at their point exclusively in exile and only able to, and, and that kind of interesting double existence. Like what's, how are things now for filmmakers like that? It's all over the place.
1: I was just saying, because I, I was thinking of this because we, we added a film to the series called The Trial, um, uh, which, a, as it turns out, uh, winds up being kind of the, one of the more direct films with, with, with the real political element to it. The Trial of the State of Russia versus Sentsov, And there's footage in there of uh, Sokurov, Alexander Sokurov, basically pet- directly petitioning Putin for the re- for release of documentary filmmaker you know convicted film a man uh ukrainian convicted of terrorism or acts of terrorism or plotting acts of terrorism uh and is in prison for 20 years he's on a hunger strike currently 40 something days into a hunger strike um but the film shows uh many filmmakers basically uh showing support giving video addresses to um signing petitions etc but like Sokurov is. I forget what the. I forget what the. I don't actually don't know what the theatrical setting was, but it basically it was a a dais of, of, of uh, prominent Russians speaking directly to the president. And Sokurov basically petitions him and says, "This is this is an embarrassment to our country. You must release Oleg Sentsov," and and Putin just kind of just brushes him aside. And like he's he like ends like he's like this monologue that that Sokurov delivers on behalf of getting him to take this seriously and maybe releasing him. Uh, and at the very end, he just tacks on, I hope I've not been insulting to you, to Mr. President. You know, as a kind of like, I have to find some, I have to find a way of being completely honest and frank and getting this across, but I know that there is a limit of what I can actually do, and there's like a little note of that. Because I'd known that he, he was living overseas, or he was living outside the country for a long time. about sucker, And he might actually still, but the fact that he has that kind of access is impressive to me and is not universal in terms of where people are in terms of
0: working. Well, with him, there's that weird footnote that one of his films was somehow
2: aided in its funding. Faust. Faust. Faust had Putin intervened in favor. So, I mean, there is, and some of these movies do have government funding, so there is something of a dialogue between the state and the arts. And it's it's a weird kind of like very 19th century kind of kind of, kind of statecraft where you talk to people to, to people in Russia about Russian politics and what they're focused on isn't kind of which power, which like which party is going to be in power, but it's like, you know, which of the, which of like the, of the, the emperor's mi- mi- ministers will we'll have his ear. Well, I
1: mean, I, it's, it, we have to mention that if we're going to addressing this aspect is Sobrennikov uh, right now, who's under house arrest. And I would say that a film like The Student, which is the film that he made preceding the house arrest he is a theater director too. And I know that that is also something, but the idea that the student would be the film that a filmmaker would then be arrested for when films like Leviathan have been made when like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a curious thing. And I, you know, I, I think the, the argument that tend to get too much into politics with the argument behind things like that, are that the more random and less logical it is, the more effective it is because you, anybody could feel like it could be them next. So it's it's a it's a it's a strange moment where like someone like Sokurov could petition Putin, Sobrenikov could be in under house arrest, and obviously Luznitsa is not going back to Russia very often.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's pick up because I kind of derailed a bit. You were going to move into talking about Well, Luznetha. I wanted to talk about
1: uh, Luznitsa because of what Daniel was saying about getting to a point where the the, the metaphorical or the surreality catching up to reality or reality catching up to it. And I find that his arc over these films uh, is fascinating, at least his, his narrative films are. If I think about um, My Joy and A Gentle Creature, which is in, which are in the series, and Donbass, which of course is not because it just premiered it can. but how Donbass, in many ways, is formally related to those films. They're all three are sort of a picaresque. All three are not really a strong central narrative. They, they kind of they're baggy in that, in in a in a in a, in a sense, um, and they have, uh, you know, at least to my mind, there is a bit of a lightness of touch at times. There's a kind of comedic rhythm to it, um, while being incredibly grim and dark. And I think that um, there's something baroque almost about My Joy. And then, or gothic or gothic,
0: mm. yeah,
1: definitely gothic. And then I think a uh, gentle creature is more Kafka esque, in many ways. Oh yeah, um, and a bit more based in reality and a bit harder to take, I think, because of that. Before it goes off into a into a into, a, into a sort of a dreamland a bit towards the end, nightmare land, a nightmare land. Yeah. <laughs> and then Donbass is it's it's like you know, it's ripping from the headlines. He's taking actual incidents that happened and he's dramatizing them, but he's dramatizing them in the same way. And so in a way that Donbass is so hard to understand and why it's a fascinating film is because it feels like this can't possibly be real while you're watching most of it. And it, in effect, all is. And so that's, you know, I think we are in a moment where reality has kind of caught up to the worst that we can imagine, not just in Russia. You know, I think we are there. And I think Our New President is a great film for you to bring up because that is the sort of coming together of that reality and our reality. And there are differences, and there's difference to their media and our media. Um, but to quickly, Our New President, which is uh, uh, the, the most recent film that we're showing, the closing night film of the series, is a film that premiered at Sundance, which is uh, entirely made up of, uh, of found footage, archival footage, however you want to say, um, uh of Russian media, and ninety-eight percent of it is official Russian media. There's a few bits of bits here and there that uh, are from YouTube that are kind of user, you know, community community generated, but otherwise it's official media, um, and it's actually covering the arc of of the U.S. election from the vantage of the Russian media, um, and how my point was we really, though, though we are obviously different countries, we have different traditions, and we're not all the same, there's a real kind of catching up uh, between Russia and the U.S. In, in in that election and in that document.
2: Um, can we go back to uh, Nita for a second?
0: Yes, by all means.
2: Um, I'm not sure if he really thinks of himself as a Russian filmmaker. I mean, I think he's ethnically Belarusian and grew up in Ukraine and, na- and now lives in Berlin, so he really views Russian society... With just this extreme negative negativity, and he views especially the, the USSR as this kind of like totalitarian nightmare, more or less akin to uh, Nazi Germany, I think. Mm-hmm. And he really, I think, views that as the core of a lot of what's just rotten in in Russian society. So his perspective is interesting because I think he can be more, you know, just emotionally and it's, 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 it's psychologically more scorched earth than a guy like Zviagintsev or Sotokarov can. It's interesting seeing also how you know these filmmakers like Maxim Pozorovkin, who now lives in what in Brooklyn. Yeah, in, in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, so he's close. He's like so I mean
0: you the, know the, like he's the, just he's the director of Arty President. President. Yes.
2: Yeah, so these people who kind of have this like inside outside perspective and what that kind of gives you. One interesting thing about the series in addition to kind of having multiple perspectives on Russia, you know, you, you have kind of Russians f- filming Russia, non-Russians filming R- Russia, and then these sort of like intermediary places as well that kind of pop up and where a lot of like, it's an extremely fertile ground artistically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it's it's not accurate for me to to, to kind of categorize Lisnitz as a filmmaker in EXO It's more like he's a f- he's a filmmaker in, in occupied. He's he's t- he's in the position of someone in an occupied state, almost, and, and coming out of that history. Or, an, that escapee. or an escapee, or an escapee.
1: Well, I mean, that's I mean, one of the things we we it's not in the series, but uh, a film that I really love, um, called Close Relations, Vitaly Mansky, uh, who is a great, great filmmaker um, made under the sun a few years ago. And I think that's one of the better articulations of this kind of former Soviet territory, self-reckoning or self-exploration or confusion or permanent state of exile that can be, that that can exist. Whereas somebody who born in the territory of Ukraine, but it was the USSR was educated in, in Moscow and in Russia, most of his career took place there. And then to see what happened in Ukraine over the last six, seven years and having to reckon with, oh, is he actually Ukrainian and not, Russia? and not Russian and kind of come to a conclusion at the end of that film that he's kind of none of the above mm-hmm. and how he, he wants nothing to do with Russia, but it's also you know, a country that he spent most of his life in um, and doesn't want to ever go back to. But can't like shake that part of his body that belongs there. Um, I, I, th- I think that, that that's a it's a, it's a unique and an artistically rich place. I think for people to be coming from, and Loznitsa has a version of that, obviously, for himself. I think he's not that far off age-wise, Mansky. and you know, and I, th- I think for that generation of of filmmakers and artists or people who maybe were born in the Soviet Union and then lived a good portion of their life and had a lot of their education in what is now Russia um, to then sort of try to make sense of all of that from from both inside and outside. Again, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, predicament on a human level. And uh, I was just say a fascinating predicament on an artistic level and a, and, a, and a totally understandably troubling one on a personal level.
0: Just want to pick up on the, on the human level, <laughs> uh, which is that, I, I mean, I think... We you know we've naturally been talking about these in these films in terms of like a broader perspective, sociopolitical perspective, um, and ironically what or not ironically what happens is that we're feeling the filmmakers' sensibilities and personalities and emotions in a way. But I'm curious if you could talk about a bit about some of the people in the films and yeah. and uh, who are who are people in the films that are really like that's that's like. Being a Russian now, or, or or even just this is a very interesting character. Uh, I guess we got a little bit into that with uh, the Hannah Pollock movie. I'll refer to it that way. But what what else is in there? Who are some you know? If people talk about a Just character, that you really get into what are some of the psychological studies here?
2: Well, to kind of I mean to kind of combine both of these with the kind of relationship between Russia and the former rep- rep- republics. One of my very favorite films in this series is a movie called Varya, which is kind of a shortish doc, but Varya herself is a Russian math teacher or maybe she's an English teacher, but she really looks the part of like a high school teacher. She exclusively wears socks and sandals and it's her going to Ukraine after she's somehow become radicalized to the Ukrainian cause through Facebook. Mm -hmm. So she's basically just like a Facebook aunt, you know, who like one of those kind of like older relatives who posts like political stuff on Facebook, you know, mm. around the clock as, you know, everyone has one, one or two, but who's really like kind of like putting her money where her mouth is. Mm. And the movie follows her. And what's fascinating about it is sort of like this skewed perspective where you have the director, who's also kind of in the same position, a Russian going into the provinces and seeing kind of what's what's happened there but through this person who's drank the kool-aid so hard and just completely kind of like in the tank and just falls for this woman who calls herself the soul of ukraine and believes that she will be the Joan of Arc of the reborn Ukraine, and mm. Ukraine will then save the world, and mm. she herself this like messianic figure, and this math teacher just—it's really hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, basically, it ends up kind of coming around where kind of sort of the Lousnitsian-like anti-Russian from the republic's po- point of view really comes un- un- under critique because you really end up seeing these people I mean at one point they end up kind of like innocently wandering into the headquarters of like right factor I think like a semi fascist uh, Western Ukrainian group and it's like it's a very funny comic film but it really kind of uh, comes down rather harshly on all kind of Eastern European na- na- nas- na- nationalisms not not, o- not only the, the Russian one.
0: Well, that, I mean that's I haven't seen that, but it sounds fascinating because it gets at the the kind of complexity of a person's interiority <laughs> coming up against the you know the the reality of of, of a, you know visiting the real life situation of something. And uh, that's Varya
1: and the filmmaker is.
0: Alina,
2: Alina Pol- oh, Pol- And
1: uh, so I, I guess to that same question, because I think we, you and I have like an ongoing, only just begun conversation about Loznitsa, which is that um, uh, in A Gentle Creature, there is a, a really, a sequence that I think was really important where we wind up in an actual besieged human rights office, which I think is kind of wonderful because again, there's a sort of Kafka esque episode episode to it but what i love about it is like there's this woman running a human rights organization um and the protagonist goes to report uh, an incident um and what i love is how like though she's like the place is literally under attack it's a total mess it's kind of a it's played for comedy but i love how like the human rights lawyer or representative clearly cares clearly like this is important i need to do this it's Totally useless. It's not going to mean, amount to anything. But the fact that somebody, there's actually something kind of inspiring and familiar about this figure still just doing it. Great, I'll take it down. I'll write a note. I'll just see what I can. Nothing will happen of this. But I'm still doing it. Um, and there's something about that that's in a couple different films. Like one other fi- another film that I think is, uh, in terms of the write-ups of the series, nobody's really taking the bait on which is unfortunate because i think it's i I really love it which is arrhythmia um boris klebnikov and uh, who's made quite a number of films in the 21st century and this is the one that we were able to show and it's uh it's a film where in terms of this series the sort of putin's russia aspect of it is pretty much in the background in the in in the form of uh he's a sort of ambulance uh paramedic uh the main character and he's Um, married to a young, successful doctor. And so we see him make house calls, people who are injured, people who need help. Um, And a lot of what he encounters is kind of comedic, some of what he encounters is horrific. Clearly there is... Uh, There's all the sort of bureaucratic elements of like kind of, uh, you know, new people get brought in and start changing the way that they're going to do their job. Things were more bureaucratic and official and their kind of rough and tumble way of doing business and saving lives is all of a sudden in in peril. And there's a critique there. But most of what happens in the film is he's in dispute with his. Wife, it's a comedy of remarriage. It's a comedy of remarriage, where like she's unhappy with him. He's a bit of a man child, and he likes to, you know, drink and party with his uh, paramedic friends after work because they're so stressed out and troubled by what they see. And 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 they kind of still love each other. And what's going to become of them? And I just love how yeah, the the society they live in has some issues, right? The jobs, the industry that they're both working in has some issues. <laughs> But really, what matters is they're two people who are in a relationship, and it's not to say that relationship is more important than any of that. But it's it's just you know going back to when you were bringing up something better to come like once you just accept that this is the reality that people live in, then they're people, Mm -hmm. and there are particularities to these people, the particularities to this culture. But there's something really wonderful about how the humanity of each of these characters in in Erythmia pushes us through in terms of the narrative. And the only other thing I was going to say to that point was thematically related, um, which is another sort of film about medicine of some sort, which is Blood um, by this filmmaker, Mm -hmm. uh, documentary filmmaker, Alina Rudnitskaya, who um, through the course of of putting this together, sort of would love to be able to paraphrase what uh, I think was uh, Bill Beery in the Village Voice. He's one of the great documentary filmmakers of our time and I think he's right about that and it's amazing to be able to say that about somebody who's to date worked in short and mid-length films. I believe she's got a feature coming out this year Um, but she's a remarkable filmmaker and she made a film called blood which is a mid-length film that actually has distribution in the u.s through icarus Mm. um and if there's any programmers out there get in touch with them and show this film because it's remarkable but uh it's a film about uh basically a blood drive uh Mm. to um obtain blood for operations as needed um but then has a double dual purpose which is that it gives money to people who are donating blood who have no money But it becomes, over the course of the 60-minute film, an amazing portrait of the nurses, the women Mm -hmm. who administer this, and what their lives are like going from town to town and the joys that they get to experience, where they get to experience the lonelinesses they have as being single women looking for love in all the wrong places, Um, and for all I know, some good places. Um, there's There's something really special about how something that is so intensely about kind of a fucked up situation on a documentary level can kind of develop into, into really
0: sensitive portraiture like mm. that. I mean, it's odd to think of it as an angle that you might go through these films that, that uh, how do these characters actually respond? How do these actual people respond? But it, it just, it becomes increasingly important to be able to kind of center things um, in, in that way. And, and when I look at how I first encountered some of these films, uh, in the 2000s, let's say, that wasn't, you know, they were still alien enough or foreign enough that you it was hard to do that, you know, in some ways, also because they were presented kind of in a wave of like, you know, alongside some European art cinema that was also taking, you know, formal risks, but a lot of risks that seemed mostly to consist of pushing the envelope, you know, uh, and kind of inf- inflicting, <laughs> upon, inflicting things upon characters on screen. Um, and it's, it's, it's nice to be able to see these movies now outside of that context, you know, outside of the, I don't know, Trierian landscape of the 2000s in a way.
1: Well, certainly I'm curious not to put it back on you, Nick, but I'm, I'm you know, we, we watched a lot of films for this. And so we probably still have a limited understanding of, of, mm-hmm. of, of Russian cinema of, of, of the day, even with that. My question to you is not like your understanding of Russian cinema, but like the challenge of a critic to not objectify uh, a people or a nation yeah. through a single lens or a single facet, in, like, if this is a mosaic, through a single facet of what yeah. one filmmaker is doing. That's, I think that's always kind of our job, but it can be mm-hmm. quite difficult yeah, To do, especially if, and I think this can be the case with a lot of the films in question, if the films themselves are kind of objectifying their own moment and their own place right. in the world. So, yeah, how do you yeah. see through all of that to kind of get the particularity uh-huh. of a of a situation?
0: Uh, I mean, I don't <laughs> very carefully. Uh, no, I mean, I, I would just say that this is why a series like this is is valuable because I, I don't think you came into it with an agenda of. We're going to show the worst situations, you know, and and somehow that's going to be the realist and truest and most authentic uh, picture of, of of things. But but yeah, it, I mean yeah, it is it is hard for any any you know any any critics or, or programmers to be in the moment and outside the moment at the same right. time, right? Right. Um, and having that that uh, perspective, especially when, yeah, I mean the the <laughs> absolute flip side of of, of some some films that are treating reality is the, the film that also feels it has to reassure you about the reality. It's, it's just showing you, too, yeah. which is one could argue epidemic in certain quarters of American independent cinema, <laughs> you know, you know, that's, that's another uh, aspect no, of it. That's that. really I, true. But, but I, I don't necessarily see that as too much of a problem in, in, in the Russian films. <laughs> they don't seem like they try to reassure you too much. No. Well, I mean, obviously there, there, there are films there that we could have, um,
1: you know hunted down that are a little bit more reassuring or a little bit more escapist escapist but Mm -hmm. one of the honestly one of the things that was in a sense refined things in a in a useful way but maybe kept us from some of the more jingoistic titles Mm -hmm. is the fact that we kept it to films that were about contemporary russia Mm -hmm. um or in like the two examples about some sort of Futuristic, you know, uh, kind of warped view of of, right. of the moment, but it kept us from any period films, and a lot of the most patriotic, jingoistic films of the 21st century right. are films about the Great War, are about Soviet, you know, successes and innovations and the space race and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, so having none of that, having all of that disqualified,
0: yeah. kind of left us
1: with. Yeah, there are again. Right. It it, it's, it it cuts out a lot of, yeah. of 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 that end of the spectrum. Yeah,
0: that this this is a good point, point as any for me to, to to mention what I've always wanted to mention. But if I remember correctly, one of those like jingoistic historical war movies, maybe it was about Stalingrad. I'm not I'm not sure some siege or other, was released in the U.S. the very same week that Russia made its first incursions within, into into the Ukraine. I believe. Anyway, something. Oh, would to...
2: that have been burnt by the sun too.
0: I think so. Yeah.
2: I, I think I want to say, twenty fourteen. I believe that that came out around the time that I was in Russia. But we don't need to discuss burnt yeah. by the sun. No, two. burnt
1: by the sun 2 And yeah. Mikhalkov in general is is an issue. But but yeah, you might be right about that though in terms of the timing of, of that film.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess I don't know. What are, are there any other any other films that you might want to mention, or should we should we bring this this particular chapter of history?
1: Um, I don't know if that, yeah, I mean, I, the, the blood was the one that I really blood, wanted yeah, to make sure, sure yeah. I talked mm-hmm. about. I mean, there are there, just quickly there are the films that, uh, like Daniel referred to, that was need in his way being one of them. they are the films made by um, by non Russians in the series that are interesting and valuable and but worth, you know, noting that they are made by non Russians, which is mm-hmm. something better to come by the Polish filmmaker Hanna Polak, Extinction by the Portuguese filmmaker Salome Lamas. And The Red Soul uh, by Dutch filmmaker Jessica Gorter. I think those are the ones. And uh, they're all documentaries, or at least documentaries of a sort. And I think really worthwhile um, for where they're coming from. The Red Soul probably being the most political of those in its way. Um, there are a lot of films that have been made in the last several years, um, documentary and otherwise, a or, I should say, mostly documentary, that grapple with the sort of honestly Putin orchestrated uh, reclamation of Stalin uh, and of that kind of dark era of the Soviet Union. And uh, The Red Soul takes very much an out. I mean, the filmmaker has made other films in Russia, but there's something about the, that where it's coming from that is, I think, so curious and inquisitive and hu- like kind of hungry to ha- get other perspectives multiple perspectives on this issue that it becomes quite useful and illuminating and it's beautifully made. But I think somebody who is Russian may not have, uh, approached it with, uh, you know, I think there's, there's something that's so kind of shocking and, uh, surprising about what she finds in terms of, you know, young people who are Stalin apologists and, you know, academics who've spent their entire lives studying Stalin who go on TV to get shouted down by the right, to people whose families were literally ruined, destroyed, members of the family murdered um during the the the, the purges who are still somewhat apologists for Putin. Or apologists for Stalin and also for Putin's reclamation of Stalin. Um I I it almost feels like this, so that has to come from the outside to kind of take all those perspectives because none of them are the filmmaker. Like none of them are the f- o- filmmakers not owning that in any historical, personal way.
0: Okay. So yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a, that's an element of this that's that's interesting to me. all the, the talk of Stalin makes me think of the death of Stalin as well, the, the film, which, which is interesting as an outsider's perspective on a piece of history, also one that kind of seems to incorporate a certain very dark Russian humor that dovetails remarkably with, like, his British absurd humor. <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting thing that happened there.
2: Um, it was also banned.
0: That's banned in Russia? Yeah,
2: so that was, like, the one foreign film to be ban- banned in Russia. And the reasons why, I mean, you could really go go into it. I mean, you can have a lot of theories, and it might just be, you know, personal prejudice and whatnot, but, I mean, there's so many reasons for them to want to ban that film.
1: Yeah, but it, it's so telling, if you want to be a little bit simplistic about it, that a film that kind of takes lightly the death of Stalin, a man who had something like an 18% approval rating when the, so- when the Soviet Union fell, is now like sacred territory, and we can't expose current audiences to
0: it. It's quite telling. Yeah, it's... Daniel, last words.
2: Yeah, in, in terms... <laughs> <laughs> um, term, yeah, just go back a little bit. In terms of films that have kind of a very interesting char- character who represents something about um the the era and to go to a fiction film this this weekend i think we'll be playing a film i really like called uh Schultes, which is about a pickpocket in moscow and it's really just this exquisitely directed film there's a lot of kind of brasson in it it's very pared down it's very precise there's also a little bit of dardenne's in the way that it's incorporating kind of the the landscape and going out into the city it is i think of all the films i've seen um, in this series, the best portrait of Moscow and in all of Russian cinema, it's, it's, it's certainly up there. In terms of my experience of my having lived there, it just feels right. Mm. Um, but it also comes into this thing where the protagonists might be experiencing reality in something of a skewed way. And there's a little bit of maybe... memento you could say as well and you realize that he's someone who just is unable kind of like in in a cognitive sense to process the past Mm -hmm. and so it's this kind of very concrete very real film that also takes on not only the psychological dimension but also kind of a metaphysical one as well
1: yeah Yeah. really well put too
2: not known in the States at all, so if you are in New York and you have an opportunity to see Schultes, please come to the Museum of the Moving Image <laughs> to watch Schultes.
1: Nick is totally deleting that. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: yeah,
0: you never know what'll happen. Um, no, um, well, I mean, I, I also am very interested to hear that because you, you're bringing in other other filmmakers there and, and be, began to make me think a bit about just the visual um, aspect of it and thinking what does make it out. You know, of I feel like his film's are, look like prestige, you know, like right. even what whatever they're sure. saying, they look like Academy Award-winning <laughs> films, and I think that's that's interesting. What 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 travels in in that regard. Um, and that's part of what makes 4 so disorienting, is that it's so lurid, but also so nicely done. So the, nicely done. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, remarkable. So strong tradition of um, uh, Russian s- cinematography alive and well, I suppose.
1: Well, to his defense, because I think that sometimes his austerity winds up, yeah, there's something maybe familiar about it, as you're saying. I do think that he is quite possibly... On a, on a craft level, like the best filmmaker working today, like I, 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 he's not my favorite necessarily, mm-hmm. but there is kind of nobody with more exacting excellence than that. And so, like the Russian context is almost kind of a disservice to even talk about mm-hmm. in that respect because he's so good at what he does.
0: We're gonna need another podcast for that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I have, I have, I have feelings about that. <laughs> but but i think i think so. <laughs> oh just a shout out to Lesnitsa who who as well just in terms of working at a very high level yeah. um that should exceed the boundaries of 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 his his very topical subject matter i mean an accomplishment like maidan still puzzles me how that's not like more yeah you know out there basically trying to make making the cinema verite revolution on the ground film, except as if every other shot is going to be, you know, uh, you know, a French revolution era painting, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and he pulls off a lot of it.
2: Well, also in terms of craft, I mean, you have to give mm-hmm. some shout out to, uh, the, uh, Garrett the elder and get in Garman, the younger, sure. I mean, hard to be a God would be yeah. as far as the series goes. I mean, I, Oh, that's to, in the series too. Of it's, course. It's yeah. hard to name many movies that, whose mise-en-scene is more just exacting and perfect than that. And the fact that it's all in the service of bringing <laughs> to life this world of muck and shit makes it all the more delightful. <laughs> and
1: Guillermo Jr. in his own, who's a different filmmaker, but clearly learning, he, 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 took, he, he taught so he his lessons. He cribbed
2: cr- 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 a few tricks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he also has like a more, there's like there's something in t- under Electric Clouds we are showing is so Fellini-esque. Mm. It's almost too Fellini-esque. Mm. And yet, how many filmmakers do you know even try yeah to have that kind of mise-en-scene have those kind of long takes that use space in that way yeah so yeah these are these are there's some extraordinary film the the purpose of this conversation that we're starting with the series is not to say there have been great Russian films but that is absolutely also true throughout the entire series and throughout just this moment these 18 years of film uh there are some great great films and filmmakers
0: well, that seems like a good uh, good moment to, to wrap up and bring to a close.
2: Here's 18 more years of cinema and Putin. <laughs> I agree with half of that.
0: All right. Uh, well, but thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream arthouse, and avant garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment, or check out our app available on Android, iOS,
2: or Kindle.